as long as this is the place, the country that we live in, as long as this is the place that we reside. We believe that success is always on the other side of hard work. Charles H. Cosgrove co-authored a really helpful book I was assigned to in seminary, and it was one of the few times I paid attention. It was a book called Cross-Cultural Paul. It's essentially a treatment about how the Apostle Paul not only crossed cultures in his writings and missionary work, but continues to cross cultures through his biblical writing. Here's what Cosgrove says in his section on the American culture. He writes, the core message of the American self-reliance myth is that when one works hard and virtuously, even against all odds, powers outside our control, a kind of providence of the American spirit or of the God who blesses America, will see fit to it that our efforts meet with success in the end. This leads to this overarching ideal that many of us have been accustomed to increasingly even since childhood, that America is the land of opportunity. Now, I'm not here this morning in a cafeteria at an elementary school in the United States of America to disparage patriotism. I think it's really fashionable today to disparage unbridled patriotism, but that's not why we're here. What I'm concerned about is that we unwittingly are taking in a particular kind of American ideal and are not critiquing it, are not questioning it. I think it's important for us as followers of Jesus to understand the implications of the invisible ideals of our country, which we merely inhale every day and exhale the next. Dr. Diane Langenberg, a psychologist, tweeted out last week, culture is like oxygen. It is in the air you breathe, and like breathing, we often never stop to think about what we are inhaling unless the air is so nasty we are forced to. It is amazingly easy to be both anesthetized to the surrounding culture and blinded by it. My desire is for us to understand the culture we're breathing in today. Because the myth of the American dream and extreme self-reliance perpetuates narratives of disregard. Let's think about this for just a minute. Believing that anyone and everyone who works hard enough will meet success causes us to look at certain communities, certain neighborhoods, and not see the visible physical American success that we would presume. And therefore, we surmise that they must not work hard. That's the logical conclusion of the American dream. When we see brokenness, even in subtle ways, the American dream reassures us that we work harder than our neighbors and our friends in other communities. With grace, the scriptures take sharp exception to the American dream. Our national presumption leave no room for suffering or the will of God. Let me say that again. Our national assumption leaves no room for suffering, nor for the will of God. At the very least, this dream has no answer for suffering when it inevitably arrives. In America, we have usurped God's sovereignty with a radical autonomy and replaced his power in and over suffering with a lust for comfort. See, the air we breathe is this national spirit which we trust much more than God's spirit. America's ideal holds little grace for brokenness. 
for suffering, for difficulty, because not only does it corrupt us in the looking, but actually it makes these sorts of things take place. You see, in order to pursue that kind of success, it will leave certain people and communities suffering inappropriately so that we don't have to. What's more, many within the Christian church wed this kind of American dream, are you with me yet? With actually the will of God. We begin with the American dream and then presume this must be the will of God as opposed to starting with the will of God and then critiquing the American dream. Using God's will as an excuse of why some abused in a system is their fault and some who are uplifted in the system, it's God's blessing raining down. We instinctively, though, don't we? Let's just be honest. No, this can't be true. This can't be right. Let me give you the wonderful theologian Chuck D. from Public Enemy. As he writes in his memoir, Lyrics of a Rap Revolution, Volume 1. Now, what is the will of God? That's the big question. You can't say the will of God is to disrespect your fellow man. You can't say the will of God is to disrespect his creations. You can't say the will of God is to disrespect the planet that you live on. You can say you're anything, any religion, but if, you dis if, if your disrespect comes in any of those three categories, you're nothing. You're whack, he says. I think the principles of religion start there. Then you get into man's interpretation and bookology. We know that Chuck D is right, that God's will does not give us permission to harm our neighbor. But what if God's will is for us to suffer together? See, both the will of God and a proper theology of suffering must be sacrificed in the pursuit of the American dream. You cannot hold all three in tension the Apostle Paul was unwilling to sacrifice either on his way to Jerusalem, and I trust that through Acts chapter 21 today, we will learn to refuse the same urge. Look at Acts chapter 21, verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there Patara, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help today. We ask for your help as we come to this next leg of Paul's recorded missionary journey on his way to Jerusalem as themes of suffering, of difficulty, of discomfort hit us in the face. Father, as we are in the midst of grief and sorrow, today lamenting the brokenness, not merely of our country and world, but Father, in our own hearts. And so we ask for your help. Open our eyes, open our ears, that we might see and hear splendid and eternal things from our Heavenly Father. Help me, Father, to be clear and responsible with your word. Help my friends, Father, to be still and to know that you are God and to hear you not merely speaking over us as a church, but directly to us in our hearts. What a God you are. What a brilliant architect of grace you are. What a brilliant and beautiful Savior your Son is. So we submit to you. We come to you because like the disciples, we say, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. 
We say all of this in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. One of the things we've been noticing in the past couple of weeks as we've looked at Acts 19 and 20 in particular is that the road that Paul is on very much reflects the road that Jesus was on. Paul was persecuted by Jewish elites, so was Jesus. Paul persisted in obeying the will of God, so did Jesus. Paul endured much affliction, so did Jesus. And on this third missionary journey, it's culminating. Paul is persisting to Jerusalem, which was the trajectory and the point where Jesus was moving to his crucifixion and suffering. And now what we're going to begin to see here in Acts chapter 21 is that even Paul's closest friends are not only going to begin to doubt about where he is going, but dissuade him from going there. Something that Jesus too knew all too well. Luke records, because he's using this we language again in verse 1 through 3, because remember, Luke is recording all of this as he journeys with Paul. This is the next leg of the journey toward Jerusalem. And if you remember, if you look back to Acts 19, verse 21, Paul has made clear his intentions to go to Jerusalem. In 1921, it says, Now after these things, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to, where is he going? Say it with me. I've said it a few times. Jerusalem. Church, where is he going? Jerusalem. This is really important, not just with geography, but understanding his persistence in this particular text. Even after rioting, this death and resurrection episode in Troas, the persistent call of his spirit-led trajectory, Paul is staying the course. He is going to Jerusalem. Chapter 20, verse 16, if you move your eyes up just a little bit, for Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Remember, Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2, in the very beginning portion of that chapter, the Holy Spirit comes down, really finds and grounds the local church in the filling of God's Spirit and His people. People begin to prophesy, speak truth, and the church is born. It is that particular moment that now the church celebrates, even to this day, every single year, the day of Pentecost. We thank God that He has given His Spirit. This is such an important gift because Jesus said He was going to send His helper. This is the fulfillment of Jesus' own words, that he would fill his church with his spirit, that we might be led, directed, and guided by his spirit. And so Paul wants to get there for Pentecost because he knows persecution will be elevated. Because in a Jewish town, in a Jewish context, they would not be celebrating along with the local church that they honor Jesus, love Jesus, believe that the Messiah is Jesus. So Paul is hastening to Jerusalem. But he has to pause, notice, in Ephesus. This is where he was previously. And from Ephesus to Jerusalem, if it would have been a road trip, about 1,000 miles, 24 hours. If he could have gotten a direct flight, it would have been less than a two-hour flight. Just for a little bit of context, there were no cars and there were no planes in the first century. So they got on a boat. They got on a boat and moved slowly at first along the coast of Asia Minor Taking these breaks, we'll notice, all the way throughout. So they're making good time, taking these breaks, interacting with different followers of Jesus, other disciples who came to know Jesus through the ministry of Paul. It's actually quite beautiful. We get this picture of him going to Jerusalem, but not by himself. We get this picture of him called by the Spirit, but not in isolation. We get this picture of him obeying the will of the Father, but not without the community of faith. Are, am I preaching to you yet? You were never meant to follow God's word by yourself. Paul, all along the way, 
is moving along with his brothers and sisters so that he might be encouraged all the way until verse 17 when he arrives in Jerusalem. Now, Paul knows two things. God's spirit has called him and he has called him to Jerusalem where he will suffer. If you remember in verses 22 and 23 from Acts 20, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies. Here's the only thing he knows that in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. The Spirit is calling Paul, and he is calling him to suffering and affliction. As we considered last week and thought through earlier, this is in direct line with Jesus. Jesus knows that he is being called into suffering. Matthew 3, the last verse, is Jesus being blessed by his heavenly Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The next verse is that Jesus followed the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted to go through suffering. We see that the call of God and suffering are often one and the same. God's, God calls us and guides us. He leads us to challenge and suffering. We may say it this way, that God never leads us to a place where we don't need him. If you find yourself in a place where you don't need to cry out, you don't need to go to his word, you don't need to be close to brothers and sisters in Christ, where you're like, wow, I really got this thing. I'd like to suggest to you, you are likely outside of the will of God because he never calls you to a place where you don't need him and don't need his people. He always calls you to a place of ever-increasing dependency upon him. As Frederick Buechner writes, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. Not only in that we have to confess our sin, but that it is costly to be a follower of Jesus. Do you see now how we have just gotten in bed with the American dream and been shocked when actually hardship comes? We believe more that we are supposed to prosper than we are supposed to suffer, and we've baptized verses to make them say that much. They, they stayed in uh, Tyre a week. While in Tyre, we sense this heartbeat begin to take pace. A theme now repeated four different times in four different quick scenes. Here's the first scene. Look at verse four. And having sought out the disciples, we're back in chapter 21. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. This is an incredibly tender moment in Paul's journey. You get these families, these wives, these children, all coming, kneeling down in the sand, this incredibly tender moment of church family, of community. A, a, a little aside, if you merely come to the gathering, you get here a little bit late, you leave right after the sermon and you never partake in communion. You drown out the announcements. You don't even think about those because that's not about you. You don't get involved in a group. You don't pursue membership. You continue to re remain in isolation. You will never know the tenderness of this prayer on the beach. You'll never know it. This is a costly moment of beautiful, tender, loving. They've been through hell and back together. Paul is passing back through and relationship picks up. Isn't it true? There are some friends, you've got to start all over again every time you see them because not much is really there. Let's figure out who we are together. And then there are those people. You just see each other. You lock eyes. You know you've been through it together. 
You start the conversation mid-sentence and you're on the same page. That's the church. They lament, they cry. But Paul has no doubt made his intention clear. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem and his friends, which is incredibly human, right? Say, don't go. If you're going to go there, it's going to be hard for you. Don't go. If you're going to go somewhere to my cost of your life, don't go. That's basic logic. If you had a friend hit you up and go, yo, I'm thinking about going to this place. They'll probably jump me, beat me up, throw me in jail. I might die. You'd be like, I've got a few other destinations in mind. I've got a couple of other places that Travelocity suggests this time of year that you could likely check out. Don't go there. This is incredibly human. And yet, there's a trickiness to this passage, isn't it? To not just a human response, looking out for a friend. Notice again the language in verse 4. This is not their own volition, but through the Spirit, they were telling Paul these things. This isn't just on their own. This is through the Spirit. Something about their attempt to dissuade Paul is coming in response of what the Spirit of God is doing and showing them. After all, the Spirit of God is not merely speaking to Paul. Let's not get this twisted. Throughout the story of Acts, Paul does not have this red phone to God that nobody else has. Like he has this direct line. This is the same as true today with your elders. I am not closer to Jesus than you. We are all by God's grace in the same proximity purchased with the same blood of Jesus in close proximity by his grace. Therefore, we should be unsurprised that other believers baked in scripture, baked in prayer, seasoned with a reflection on the spirit of God's leading are speaking to Paul. So it's a good reminder for us as a church that following God's will is not about praying on your own right before a meal and then coming back to the church family. I've been praying about this. God told me to do this. And anything that you say in response will be in a violation to the word of God that rained down supremely in my particular brain and heart because he only speaks to me about me. It's not what's happening here. It seems like God is speaking to multiple people. We can't say, I've prayed about it. God told me as if he's not speaking to your brothers and sisters about your life as well. That he's not speaking to you about my life as well. God speaks to his community so that when obstacles and decisions come our way, they are not just for us along with our prayer closet moments with Jesus to make those decisions, but to bring to the community of faith and saying, I am burdened by this decision. How is God speaking to you about it? Because isn't it true, the reason we don't do that, because maybe God hasn't spoke to us, we've spoken to us, and we're afraid that God actually might not give us what we want. The American dream continues to reign in our hearts, even as we're quoting God. Luke doesn't record Paul's response to these overtures. All we know is that Paul presses on. He continues to move toward Jerusalem. They depart, continue on their journey. However, we notice that Luke is continuing to use this we language. He's the writer of Acts, and yet he's with Paul, traveling with him. And so in this tender moment beside the beach, or rather on the beach, Luke is there. And they persist on to Tyre, from Tyre, arrive at Ptolemus, Ptolemus, and then the second scene is given to us in verse 7. Look at verse 7 through 9. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Hear this, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. 
Paul and those traveling now in this particular city immediately seek out local, the local church. They immediately go to their family. They are received and they stay for a day. And then it's on to Caesarea and they see Philip. Philip hasn't been mentioned since Acts 4 or 840. And in that particular moment, he's preaching the gospel, but itinerantly moving around from place to place, proclaiming the gospel. He's one of the seven first deacons, if you remember from Acts 6. But it seems like what he does is many people have to do, they get a little bit older, they give up the itinerant game, stop traveling a little bit, because literally anyone who loves business travel doesn't do it, right? It's when you have done that for a long time, you're like, give me a different game to play. This is not really exciting. And so he settles down in Caesarea. He has a family. He raises them up in Christ, and they have these particular gifts, these four children, these four daughters, to speak truth, this, this office of prophecy, this proclamation of God's truth. And they likely, the reason that Luke brings this up, they likely prophesy to Paul about everything that's going on. Contextually, surveying what's going on around, it's likely that the same tension that we heard previously, that through the Spirit, Paul's friends were urging him not to go, it's likely that this prophetic vision and these prophetic words were striking the same chord. But let's make sure we don't miss this. Four unmarried, single women speak prophetically to the Apostle Paul, and he listens. Four unmarried, single women speak to one of the chief writers of the New Testament, and he sits and listens. Can I suggest to you, principally, Biblically, we should understand that in particular, a woman's value is not seen in and through her husband, whether or not she is married, but rather through the grace of God. This is not just in and of herself, but her value within the local church. Her value within the local church is not seen based on her marital status, but in her God-given gifts to speak truth in love. Marriage is not the graduation point to ministry. By grace, you are called the minute you are saved. That God entrusts gifts, not just to us as brothers and sisters in Christ, but particularly in this case, we see a gift of prophecy given to four unmarried women, and they use that gift to speak truth, even to one who had significant ecclesiastic power. This is me not just proclaiming this over you, but me listening as an elder of the local church to listen not to those who I believe have credibility to speak into my life with degrees like I have, but those who are my sisters in Christ. What's somewhat implied, I think, in this passage now becomes emphatic in the next scene. This is the third scene. Look at verse 10. While we were staying for many days, so in Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus, you can name your child that. It's in the Bible. It's a really great name. Came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt. This is a fascinating scene. Took his belt, bound up his feet and hands and said this. Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands 
of the Gentiles. First it's Paul's friends, then it's these four unmarried women speaking prophetically. And if Paul's not getting the picture, now he becomes a living, breathing illustration. Take off your belt. I'm going to wrap you up. And Paul's like, could you just tell me? No, get down. I'm going to wrap up your hands. I'm going to wrap up your feet. And then he says, the one who owns this belt, this is his fate in Jerusalem. Now Agabus knows what Jerusalem is like. Where is he coming from? Judea. He's coming from the very place where Paul is heading. And he's like, I've just been there. It's not any calmer. It's not any warmer to receive you there. Agabus makes clear what is implied previously. And what Paul has to do again is decide to continue to follow and obey. See, isn't it true that we don't just decide to follow Jesus once? We don't just decide to obey him once. Obedience is the daily habit of submitting to God's well, to be sure, salvation is a singular moment, a singular work of God's eternal grace, sovereignly electing those whom he would. But discipleship in Jesus' name is a every minute, every hour, day by day, week by week. You did not decide to follow Jesus and now are just living in the glory years. Today I had to decide to follow Jesus. After this, I need to decide to obey Jesus. Tonight, when my kids rile me up and will not go to sleep, like a reverse hostage situation, I need to decide to follow Jesus in that moment. So here's the scene for Paul. You've been told by your friends. You've been prophesied over by four uh, prophetesses. And now you are literally bound up being told this is your fate. He has to decide to obey again. Isn't it true that we'd like to think, and what the American dream tells us is that if you obey God, it will open you up to comfort, it will open you up to luxury, it will open you up to all kinds of blessings that are physical and visible. What the scriptures teach us is that the reward of obedience is another opportunity to obey. Hear that. Let it settle in, critique you, and crush idols. The reward of obedience is another opportunity to obey. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Now, Paul's friends are watching this. Can you even imagine? Luke, he's like trying to take notes. And then this dude started binding him up and saying, this is going to happen to you. He probably stopped scribing there for just a second and takes it in. And then Luke says, using again this we, we language, look at verse 12. When we heard this, we... And the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Don't miss this. The fourth scene, Luke puts down the pen and says, Luke, or rather Paul, don't go. Don't go. I, I think we get this impression like he was always going to do it. But feel like this is the man that probably is a physician for Paul the one who's caring for him, who has labored with him, who has walked with him, just prayed on that beach, just listened to the prophetic word, just heard this prophet speak this. He is overwhelmed of what this will cost his friend. And so he says, Paul, don't go. Don't go, don't do it. He too urged Paul not to go. Now to be sure, we might chalk this up that Paul was loved. Yes, Paul is well loved by his friends. But how are we supposed to understand this? 
How are we supposed to understand this steady pace of resistance that Paul is receiving from his own friends, church, family, and missionary partners, especially in light of the Spirit's persistent presence in Paul's conviction, as well as their own words of telling him not to go? Isn't this the Christian life in a nutshell? And we sense the Spirit of God calling us to do something, and then this other word, and somebody said, the Spirit says this, and we're like, what do I do? How do I make this decision? Let's first talk about the will of God. These four different scenes make it clear. It's not always cut and dry what it means to obey, what it means to follow him. And this is often why we take a shortcut and just do what we want. Instead of truly pausing, being still, and reflecting. And so the question I'd like to ask for the next couple of moments, how does God's will work? How does God's will work that we might understand it? Four different things. God's will should be understood in rather three basic ways. What God desires, what God decrees, and what God allows. What God desires, what God decrees, and what God allows. Each of these aspects are all grounded in his character. What God desires concerns his zeal for his glory. In other words, he gives us commands. He gives us a picture of righteousness that his glory would be put on display. Secondly, what God decrees concerns his faithfulness to his own sovereignty and his own power. This aspect of his will is summarized well when when God says, let there be light and there's light. What he decrees happens. In other words, his word is as good as reality. From the moment he speaks it, it takes place. It's called his sovereign efficacious will. Isn't that great? His sovereign efficacious will. And you might go, how do I relate to that? You don't. No one possesses that kind of will. Case in point, Glory, Jedediah, Micah, and Levi, my four children, what I say almost never goes in their hearts, right? It's not sovereign and efficacious. Sit down, they stand up, listen, they talk, talk, they listen, right? It's always the, we do not possess a sovereign efficacious will. Only God does. In other words, his word demands a necessity of consequence. It happens like that. That's his decreed will. Thirdly, what God allows concerns his love and mercy as creator. So God desires that his glory would be revealed. God decrees that his faithfulness would be put on display. God allows, which proves his love and his mercy. This takes place really in an understanding that God gives us a will, a permissiveness to what it means to be a human being. Now, this does not violate his decrees. It does not violate his desires. In fact, in many respects, what happens in his permissive will, he works in those things to bring about his desires and his decrees, even within his permissiveness. See, God is not frustrated nor stumped by your will or mine, but when he allows something, he uses even that to ultimately fulfill what he desires. Think about the brothers that Joseph had. Think about the way that the writer of Genesis summarizes, though his brothers gave him up to slavery, the Lord says, what you intended for evil, I meant for good. What you did within my permissive will, I have redeemed and brought order back to. This is his allowed will. See, God's will is multi-layered. We usually just think about it in one fashion or another. And so when we look at God's multi-layered will, of course we have multi-layered issues with his will. We fail to follow his desired will. 
We fall short of beholding God's decreed will. We take advantage of his permissive will. We even say his permissive will proves he doesn't love us when the point of his permission is actually his great love for us. Much more though, I think what all of this reveals to us is our misunderstanding of God's decrees because we don't know his desires. Our misunderstanding, case in point, is Acts 21. Here's what I think is going on in Acts 21. I think the Spirit of God is revealing to his friends, to Paul's friends, to these four prophetesses, to this particular prophet Agabus, and also to Luke and the company of missionary partners that Paul has. The Holy Spirit is revealing to them what God is decreeing, what is going to take place, and what they're doing in their minds is there's no way he desires that. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down yet? God reveals what he decrees. And then everyone in Paul's orb is deciding in their hearts and in their minds, that doesn't match with the desires of the God that I know. Therefore, they plead with Paul not to obey. Philip's daughters, Paul's friends in Tyre, Agabus and Paul's own team, they know what God is saying will happen, but they don't believe that God would want Paul to suffer. And so, throughout this entire course, Paul meets people who continue to pull him away. See, what Paul's community has done is heard directly from the Spirit, but misapplied his message. Heard directly from the Spirit, but misapplied his message. The picture of Paul's suffering was not meant to cause Paul's friends and those traveling with him to dissuade him from going, but to encourage him to press on. Right? Not to say our God would never want us to suffer, but to say, if this is his will, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to remind you that resurrection is real. Paul, remember when you rose that dude from the dead? Therefore, no matter what happens in Jerusalem, God's got this. No matter what takes place, your God is a very present help in time of trouble. We remember that in Lystra. We remember that in Iconia. We remember that in Ephesus. We remember that in Antioch. We remember that all over the place. This is why God reveals stuff to his friends, that they would remind him of who God is. I wonder if the Lord has given you such a picture and understanding, not only of your own life, but of friends. Have you misunderstood and applied the will of God because it didn't match what you felt comfortable with about God? See, we often believe that God would never desire our harm. Therefore, if something decreed leads to our harm, we believe that God is being hypocritical or contradictory. There's no way he would want me to go through that. God would never want me to be uncomfortable. So surely he isn't pleased if I go to that place or that person or to those people. Surely he's cool if I'm not perfect and holy. But what if God cares more that his name become famous throughout all the world? What if God more central to his glory is not your comfort, but your holiness? What if he leads you to a place not where you feel safe, but where you need him? You see, when we manipulate or disregard his desires, we are offended by his decrees. When we fail to comprehend his heart, we won't follow his commands. But hear this, God's going to accomplish his will. We don't frustrate his will, right? As soon as we feel like, well, we, I must be changing course of what God, no, he's going to fulfill what he decrees. Malachi 1.11. You know, when you go to Malachi, it's a good Sunday. 
For from the rising of the sun to its setting, God says, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies. The Lord Sabaoth will be honored. The question is, are you willing to honor him? The whole earth will be filled with his fulfilled will. Peter announced the identity of Jesus and scenes later, do you know what he told them? Don't go to Jerusalem. Peter says, this is the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you. And then he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter says, that's a bad idea. That's not a great way to be king. Kings need to be alive. Kings need to sit on a throne. And Jesus says, my pathway to glory is through a cross. See, Paul is not coming up with this. Paul is following Jesus in this. So what does Jesus say to Peter? Matthew chapter 16 records it. And Peter took him, that's Jesus aside, began to rebuke him saying, far be it for you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So like Peter in Acts, Jesus is convinced by the word of God, is obedient to the point of suffering for the glory of God in Jerusalem, even when those closest to him say, don't go. In fact, Peter says, this will never happen. This will never happen. Not, I got a question about that. Can you help me understand? This will never, why? Because what God was decreeing did not match what Peter desired. And therefore, he was even encouraging Jesus to disobey. Dorothy Sayers, English writer in the early 20th, 21st century and pastor's kid, I might note, uh, in her book, Creed or Chaos, gives witness to what it truly means to follow Jesus in this kind of ethic. It seems to me quite disastrous that the idea should have got about that Christianity is an otherworldly, unreal, idealistic kind of religion that suggests if realistic or if, if we are good, rather, we shall be happy. On the contrary, it is fiercely and even harshly realistic, insisting that there are certain eternal achievements that make even happiness look like trash. What she understands is what Paul is living out and what Jesus perfected. Not that God does not want to keep his people safe, but he desires his glory to go forth more. He desires for his glory to be put on display. In fact, that's what Jesus wrestles with in the garden when he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. So it's not a lack of opposition about why Jesus is obedient to the points of cross, but rather it's because he laid his will down first. Jesus is able to follow the will of God because he puts his own will to death. The paramount reason we are so hesitant to follow the will of God is not just because we don't know his desires, share his desires, or understand his degrees, decrees, but rather are hesitating. And our hesitation is grounded in our refusal to lay down our will and our dreams and pick up his desires and his decrees. Paul ultimately gives us a picture of this in Acts 21 when he finishes this particular passage in verse 13. 
Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, Luke writes, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Paul says, I'm ready to be imprisoned. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to follow the name of Jesus. And therefore, like Jesus on the Mount of Olives, everyone starts getting the picture. Oh, that we would be so tenacious in the face of opposition, it transforms people around us. That they all say together, the will of the Lord be done. See, Jesus is the one who suffered on our behalf. In becoming like us, he suffers. Therefore, in becoming like him, we will suffer. And in this, we even become a church that he's calling us to be. The passage concludes with this in verse 15 and 16. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Paul's persistence led to a group of people willing to go with him. Did you catch that? This was the true response of the church. Not don't go, don't go, don't go, only. But when they saw that the word of God was being obeyed and followed even to the point of suffering, they all raised their hands and say, we'll go too. We'll go with you. Luke goes with him. Even more people joined together. Did you see that from Caesarea? And went with us. A church is birthed out of suffering, not comfort. More Christian community is harnessed through suffering, not through comfort. Church, what if it gets harder, not easier? What if instead of accumulating cash over the course of our church life and we find a great place to build a nice building and have some cushy seats where we don't have to leave because we're smelling stuff that make us want to throw up? What if it gets harder? We say, praise God because his glory is going out. We say, praise God, because people are getting saved. We say, praise God, because addictions are being healed. We say, praise God, because marriages are getting mended. We say, praise God, because in the middle of great affliction, we are drawn close. We say, praise God, because the kingdom of darkness is getting a swift kick, dent kicked into it. We say, praise God, because ethnicities are coming together. We say, praise God, because the heavens are invading Logan Square. We say, praise God, because Jesus' name goes out when his people are willing to suffer for his name's sake. Oh, I wish. Heavenly Father, would you bestow that kind of feeling, that kind of joy, that kind of elation, that kind of tenacity in us. Not that more and more we would build a kingdom unto ourselves with the name church in the square flapping in the wind, but that the name of Jesus would reside in this place. Let the name of Jesus reside in the homes across the street and throughout the neighborhood, further west in Hermosa, further west in Belmont Cragen, all over this city for the glory of Jesus. This is not just a great thing to talk about. This is what the scriptures decree is going to happen. Church in the square, let's be part of it. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we need this today. Today, I just want comfort. Walking to church, I was lamenting, I was sweating already. Forgive me. That's what's the top of my mind. Forgive us, Father, for the ways that we lament and cry out because we have weakly misunderstood 
applied or even dared to believe your will. So, Father, give us the mind of Christ, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but became obedient. Though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but became in human likeness and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, you, Heavenly Father, have exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess, every knee shall bow, that Jesus Christ is Lord. May that future reality show up today for our good and our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.